Hey, this is Neil Mackay, your host of a Vietnam podcast. Now, before we get started on this episode, I wanted to share with you about one of my favorite affiliate partners, and that is Fiverr. I've been using Fiverr for years for everything from ordering YouTube thumbnails to keyword research, writing podcast articles, even to Canva designs and thumbnails and more. So whether you're a budding entrepreneur, a podcaster, or anyone in between, Fiverr has got you covered. It really is the go-to platform if you want to find freelancers offering a massive range of services to help you on any project. Maybe you need a stunning new logo or just a short animation, whatever you need, you can find it on Fiverr. What I love the most is how easy Fiverr makes it to connect with talented freelancers from around the world, all at prices that will fit whatever your budget is. Plus, with Fiverr's secure payment system, you can trust that your transactions are safe and secure. No dodgy people you meet on Facebook groups that disappear with your money and never give you what you want. What, that's only happened to me? As an affiliate partner, I will get a small commission if you use the link and at no extra cost to you. As an affiliate partner, I will get a small commission if you click my link and you buy something, all at no extra cost to you. And best of all, you will be directly supporting the making of this podcast that you're listening to for free, but it is not free to make. So why we head over to somewhere that you've probably never been before. It's called the show notes. So whatever app you're listening in, if it's Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anything at all, head to the show notes, click on my special link, and then you can browse thousands of gigs ready to help you with your next project. And now, let's dive into today's episode. Let's go. into season two now so thank you for uh, people who are regular listeners or if you're tuning in for the first time thanks very much i hope you enjoy the show and you can find other episodes on the website sevenmillionbikes.com or pretty much anywhere that you listen to podcasts now today my guest is an australian you're the first australian on the show i'm the first australian yes repping australia Uh, so we have uh, ella beth with me now ella beth has been in vietnam now for seven years Mm-hmm. Wow. I have been, yep, seven, almost seven years, uh, six and a half. I took a six-month hiatus and went and lived in Dubai for six months, but almost seven years of getting up there, so wow. it's exciting. And you're a Hanoian for most of that time, right? I am. I lived in Hanoi for since the end of 2012, so I moved, well, I went to visit, originally went to visit my parents for Christmas, and I was on a three-month visa, and I thought, oh, you know, I don't have, like, a boyfriend or a mortgage or a study to go back to I'll, I'll just go and have a three-month break and at the end of three months I was like I don't want to leave yet I'll just stay another three months so it was originally six months and six years later it's 2019 I'm still here <laughs> so it's good I like it and I've just realized you're actually the third Hanoian on this season out of only four guests oh who are the others <laughs> well so we've had um woman two mm-hmm. but now lives in Saigon but from Hanoi originally comedian mm-hmm. And we had Sen Nguyen, who's a, a reporter, 
and she's from Hanoi now lives in Saigon and then we uh, now have yourself Amazing. <laughs> but you're all Saigonese now so it's okay because this that's is a right. Saigon based <laughs> podcast but that's alright so you're from Orange just three hours out of Sydney mm-hmm. and um, so country Australia that's an interesting place to be yeah so I was born in Orange and raised there until I was 18 years old it's, it's a beautiful town uh, it gets really cold in winter people think of Australia as being like a, a, a hot, sunny place like the beaches, but uh, where I live has quite high elevation. So uh, it's a town really known for its cold climate wines. Uh, it's become quite like a foodie destination for people traveling outside of Sydney for the weekend. So that's really nice because growing up it was rather quiet uh, and a little bit of a sort of country Australian homogenous town, you know. I didn't really get so much culture growing up there, but... Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it was a nice place to live. And then at 18 years old, I thought, I'm going to go and see what the rest of the world has to offer. <laughs> and so at 18, then where did you come to Vietnam or you, you went elsewhere? So at 18 years old, I jumped on a tour bus with a band and traveled all up and down the east coast of Australia for two years, uh, singing with a five-piece vocal band, singing in high schools, doing motivational stuff. And, yeah, it was a really interesting experience. And when I finished that, I thought I'd come over to Vietnam. And, yeah, I'm still here. Well, so let me give you a full introduction. So you started singing at 14, Mm -hmm. toured with a band, moved to Vietnam. You've sung all over Vietnam, right? And you were the first foreign female competitor on the Vietnamese voice. Is that right? I was earlier this year. So I auditioned in January 2019. Got the call early February, was on the plane down to Saigon, late February, and then it was back and forth between the cities as we filmed the different episodes further and further into the competition. And, yeah, I was the first Australian. Well, not even just first Australian, first foreign female on The Voice who sang Vietnamese. So, yeah, it's really exciting. And you got in the final 13, right? Top 13. Top 13 Congratulations. Thank you That's so awesome. much. So I have a bit of a backstory to um, how Ella has ended up on 7 million bikes today. <laughs> um, so as, as many people would know, I do stand-up comedy. And uh, I have this joke where, uh, which <laughs> basically making fun of the tones in Vietnam. If you take the word N-A-M, Nam, and you change the inflection of the context that can make seven different meanings. So I do this joke on stage where I say, uh, I ask somebody, and ask an expat who can speak Vietnamese to come join me on stage. And Ella put her hand up. She went, yeah, I can speak Vietnamese. I was like, okay, come up, come up. And I handed her a piece of paper. There you go. We're going to do it again. So the piece of paper says, I lay in a bed with a man called Nam holding five mushrooms for five years. And Nam... Voi nam la zi nam. Ko nam nam. Nam nam. And just my colleague Lei uh, is the one that helped me with that translation, that joke, and she literally can't say it in Vietnamese without cracking up laughing because it's just it is ridiculous, right? And it's an actual Vietnamese tongue twister. Yeah. I mean, when you speak a different language and you read like what a Vietnamese tongue twister would be, I would never have expected it to be one word, seven meanings. It's, it's crazy, right? So you you can speak Vietnamese quite well, right? So yeah, so my Vietnamese isn't. It's not by any means fluent, but it's uh, very conversational. So I learned 
to speak Vietnamese from friends and uh, by dating Vietnamese guys. So the Vietnamese that I've learned and that I speak is, is it's very functional. So I can talk with my friends' parents at Tet Holiday about family and, and work and life and what I want to do in the future and what I like to do. Um, but as far as my vocabulary goes, it's not quite as wide as it should be if I was going to be a fluent speaker. And I've heard that several times from people who can speak Vietnamese, but they say the exact same thing, it's functional. Mm. And is it that much of a leap from having a functional Vietnamese to conversational Vietnamese? I think the difference between the functional and the conversational Vietnamese is you learn the things that you need to know that will help you to get around the city or get around the country as far as ordering food or knowing directions or numbers or... uh, how to tell your children to sit down and be quiet, that kind of thing. Um, but when you get into conversational, I understand all the grammar, for example. So the grammar isn't what boggles me. Once you understand the, the way that structures of the sentences are structured in Vietnamese, that's not the problem. It's just there's so many vocabulary. And, like, we just had a little, uh, what's the word, a little experiment doing <laughs> There's one word, and if you say it wrong, most Vietnamese people, if they're listening, they'll be they'll understand what you're saying within the context, even if you say a word wrong. But just trying to learn all of the vocabulary that you ha- that you can learn, and knowing that I'm probably going to say some of these words wrong is just yeah, it, it can be a bit of a struggle. But so thank you for coming on stage with me that time. So I, yeah, we were doing it in Vika. <laughs> You came on stage, you did it really well, because then I brought up my colleague Lynn and she said it in Vietnamese and, and yours was pretty accurate. How difficult it is to speak Vietnamese. There's a word, three letters, that has seven different meanings based on the context and the intonation. Now, is there any expat here who's confident in their Vietnamese? He's pointing to you. Are you, are you good at Vietnamese? Yeah. Do you want to come try something? Come on, Alabama. Alabama, I want you to say this sentence in Vietnamese for me. The sentence is I lay with a man now for five years, holding five mushrooms. I'm like, come here. And then uh, I went into work, I can't remember, a few weeks or a couple of months later, and Leia, who'd been there that night, she's like, Neil, come and see this, and puts on 
the Vietnamese voice and she's like, that's that girl that came on stage. And so we watched it a little bit because, and you do it and you speak in Vietnamese with the guest, with the host, right? Yeah, I speak Vietnamese with the judges and the host on the TV show. There wasn't much translation done. A couple of times I was like, either could you repeat that a little slower or off, off camera what was cut out was um, could you speak English in that part. But when I was replying, I was responding in Vietnamese. So. Yeah, that was good. So she was having to translate for me, so we were watching it. And then she's like, they're saying this, that judge is saying that. And some of the judges could speak English, right, and some couldn't. Is that right? Yes, yeah, so uh, Miss Tang Ha, the female judge... She her English is fantastic. She's lived in the U.S. before. Uh, Ho Huayang, his English is his English is really good as well. He's worked with foreign artists. Um, my judge, uh, Tuan Hung, he's he's he hasn't lived overseas per se. Uh, so his English was probably the the less developed of the four judges. So Tuan Hung was actually the coach that I ended up being on his team. And uh, he was great. He's he's more rock. He's more sort of younger than the other judges. And so I think what he saw in my voice and my performance was that I was a little more contemporary. So even though there was a bit of a language gap, my Vietnamese was enough that we could bridge that and his English was enough that we met halfway. He was he was a great coach, so, yeah. <laughs> and, so the, and then we bumped into each other recently and um, I was like, Hey. Of course, at the beer festival, yeah. the yeah. beer festival, and I was like, come on, 7 million bikes. So thank you very much for thank coming you, on. Thank you, thank so you. So you're, a, I think you told me this before, you're a trained jazz singer. Yeah, right? yeah. So when, when I said that I started singing at 14, that was when my parents put me into singing lessons. And very quickly, my teacher said, look, have you ever sung jazz? I was like, no, I don't really even know what jazz is. And she said, let me play you some stuff. She played me some Etta James and some Ella Fitzgerald. And I was like what is this amazingness? And she said, well, this is jazz music. I said, okay, I want to sing this. Like, teach me how to do it. So at a fairly young age, I decided that jazz was sort of the genre that I felt most at home in, felt most comfortable singing. I really love that you can put a lot of expression and a lot of emotion into jazz because the lyrics are often very, very deep and quite heart-wrenching, especially with the older jazz singers. Uh, from like the blues era and stuff so yeah I really fell in love with the with the genre um and then I went into a bit of classical singing to develop my technique and my range and my register and then I I pretty much finished taking the singing lessons once I left my hometown and went on the road but jazz is my home genre it's the one that I love to sing I'm, I'm moonlight as a rock star sometimes I like to pretend to be a pop star um, my songwriting is a little bit kind of on the folky side, but when I sing jazz, that's that's me. That's Ella Beth. <laughs> and do you get to sing jazz much uh, these days? Uh, yes. So I haven't been doing um, any regular jazz nights recently. Mostly my regular nights are a mix between pop, like pop top 40s and some rock uh, but I'm hoping to start a regular jazz evening at one of the cafe bistros here in town. So that'll be exciting. That'll be really nice. I, the, some of the people that I play with, young Vietnamese musicians in town, are excellent jazz players, and we have a great time playing together. So working with them just makes it all the more special to be back in my home territory. <laughs> so you joined a band at 18. That's pretty cool. Tell us about that. Yeah, uh, it was a little unexpected. 
they were, when they came through my hometown, they were actually auditioning for male singers. And I said, look, I know I'm not a guy. Let me audition. Just listen to me sing anyway. Keep me on the books. So they heard me sing. They were like, yeah, we really like your voice. And then a few months later, uh, one of the existing girls in the band decided that she was going to finish her time. So they called me up and I went and did like an audition at the band base, which is in the Hunter Valley. So that's another area of Australia well known for wine, about four hours away from my hometown. So, yeah, basically they said, look, we really like what you do. We think you mesh with the band. And I pretty much got on a plane and jumped on the bus up in Brisbane and then came down the east coast of Australia and did that up and down for two years. So, yeah, it was really exciting. What we would do is go into schools during the week, mostly high schools, and do performances where we touched on um, road safety and relationships, um, depression and self-harm, drug and alcohol safety, all sorts of things. We do it through music to inspire the kids. So obviously music is pretty much a universal language. And so young people would really get involved in the music and then would provide a message of positivity. And, you know, if you need help, like, don't be afraid to reach out. So it was a really exciting time. Uh, that's super cool. <laughs> I literally was going to ask, so what rock and roll stories have you got from that time? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you've got some. I mean, it's one of these, during the day, we're like squeaky clean message to the kids, but by night, you're like mainlining heroin and throwing TVs out of windows oh my, and things like that. No? <laughs> no. So uh, it's, it was actually a band um, that was formed within a church group. Right. So I'm, well, backstory, I'm a pastor's kid. So I, yeah. Joining the band was a part of, I guess, my ministry time at that point in my life. So, no, there was no no drugs, no TVs out the window. I'm trying to think of, like, some crazy things we did do. We were all between the ages of sort of 19 and 23. What did we do? Stayed up late one night. We Yeah, we stayed up really late playing cards fairly often. Um, what else did we do? I know we were, we, were, we, we were silly, you know. We'd go get McDonald's at 2 in the morning and be like, oh, we're so bad. Like, check us out, rock stars. It wasn't really a rock star life. I, I met some incredible people during my time. Like, probably I think my best story was that we spent a month down in Tasmania, which is a small island at the bottom of Australia. Tasmania is probably one of my favorite places in all of Australia. It's also one of the strangest places in Australia. I've, I've been, been, you've been? I've been, yeah. oh. <laughs> I've been to like Launceston and I met people in this like <laughs> village that had like never been to Hobart. Cause they're yeah. like, I was like, how have you never, this is the smallest island in the world. It's only like, what's the difference between Launceston and Hobart? Like An hour and a half. Yeah, and they were like, oh, nah, 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 mate. <laughs> Don't go to a big city, big smoke, nah. Melbourne, nah, never go to Melbourne. It's true, right? It's very true. Yeah. It's, it's, it's such a strange culture there because, like, I look at it and I, you know, visually, like, green rolling hills and sheep and rocky coastlands, I'm like, this could be, like, Ireland or it's it could be New Zealand. Zealand. It's the most beautiful place. Or Scotland. Or Scotland, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, just it's, it's just this most beautiful, beautiful, beautiful scenery. And then, and then there's, like, the culture of the people there and... For example, so we were driving between Hobart and Launceston. And then, mind you, this is in 2010. So it's 2010. We're driving from Hobart to Launceston, which is, like you said, an hour and a half away. We're in our bus, and the bus driver's like, okay, cool, we need to get gas. So we're like, okay, so we pull off at this gas station. 
And right <laughs> in 2010, above the front door is this big new shiny sign that says FPOS now available. And I'm thinking to myself, FPOS now available? What what did you do last week? Like it was it was really the strangest the strangest experience, but FPOS is quite an Aussie term, just in case someone doesn't know what's FPOS. ATM card? Yeah, it's okay. like just paying by car, but like, I don't think other countries call it that. So you literally, like, you couldn't pay by car. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Up until then. Well, I used to live in Melbourne for nearly four years, and you know what they used to say about how you could tell if somebody was from Tasmania? They yeah. had two heads? Well, it was they had a scar on their neck where they removed the second head. <laughs> I didn't ever believe those things about Tasmania. I was like, you know, it, it can't be that weird. And I, I don't know if anyone has scars on their necks, but there's definitely a different culture. I mean, they're just a little more insular than, than, uh, than I grew up being. But at the same time, it's funny because you go down to Tasmania and you'll go to the post office and be like, I just want to send a postcard to Australia. And they'll be like, excuse me, you mean you want to send it to the mainland? I'm like, okay, you want to be a part of Australia, but you also want to be a little bit weird. Like... I don't understand. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so when did you first come to Vietnam then? So my first trip to Vietnam was in 2001. My parents brought me and my younger brother over. and I was 10 years old and he was 5. And so my parents, had, I, they had wanted to do some aid trips, uh, work with charities for a while. And my dad had been to India and China. My mom had been to Cambodia and Vietnam. And I think they wanted to sort of open my younger brother and my, my eyes up at a young age. So they brought us to Vietnam for three weeks and we started in Saigon. I still remember the first time that I stepped off the plane. So I was blonde when I was a little girl and my little brother had like ginger hair. And in two, 2001, like kids, Western kids in particular weren't that much of a common sight in Vietnam. The country hadn't been that open to tourism for very long, so... My little brother and I step off the plane and the girls waiting at the bottom of the airplane stairs with their little umbrellas, like their eyes went so big and they ran up the stairs and were like shuffling us down with the umbrellas. Like my little brother and I were like, we're like royalty over here. So that was my first little experience into Vietnam. But um, at that point, it's funny now as an adult living in Saigon and going to the places that I went as a 10-year-old because I still see things so vividly as I did as a 10-year-old, particularly like a, a very, I guess a very profound memory to me was at 10 years old going to the park in between Phangun Lao and Le Lai Street. And at that point, there were so many street kids around, not, not so much begging, yes, begging sometimes, but often just playing, you know, with a shuttlecock or whatever. And me as a white kid, they'd all stare at me for a second and then be like, "You like, in Vietnamese, you want to come play with this? And I, I just have such, like, distinct memories of that point in my life where I, I knew at that point that I had a real affinity for Vietnam. The people, the culture, the, the food, like, the, the, everything that I felt here, I was like, this feels right, this feels like home. So at 10 years old, I knew I was going to live here at some point. And then I came back at 14, 15, 16, 17, doing different aid trips, different organizations, working with different charities and projects. And then in 2012, my mom and dad actually moved to Hanoi to start their own uh, charity organization. And I came to visit them at Christmas. 
And like I said, the rest is history. I'm still here. So it's been a good run. It's a good run. And I've, I feel like I'm in the place that I always knew I wanted to be. So that's good. And that really uh, resonated with me, what you just said there about, um, so my wife and I, we came here for a, a vacation like four years ago. And we were here for the best part of three weeks. We came to visit her sister, who also lives here as well. Shout out to Lee and Arika. And, um, yeah, similar, we just fell in love with the place. Like, it's just weird, you know, and now from doing this show and talking to other expats, you know, I think everybody seems to have this similar thing. And I, I can't even really describe it, but you just come here and it's like, I don't rem- So I remember we came on the vacation for three weeks and we went back to Wellington. And then all we did was eat Vietnamese food all weekend and went out for like Vietnamese coffee we found all these restaurants Vietnamese restaurants we never knew existed and then it was pretty much not long after that we are like right let's go travelling let's we never intended and I've said this before on the show never intended to live here for this long we just came for six weeks and now yeah over three years later well I don't know how long we'll be here for but you know it's uh, yeah and it's a good place and it's been interesting doing this show as well like I've had people reach out to me on Facebook I've had someone just reach out to me this week uh, who's just told me he visited Vietnam recently and he's went back to America and he's like literally fallen in love with the place, fallen in love with a girl. He's going to be moving back here in December. I've invited him to catch up for a beer and things like that. And he loves listening to the show because he like he, he just misses Vietnam. And so things like that. And then I've had comments from local people who've heard the show and be like, they just find it really interesting. And I think like they're really proud to hear why expats move here or why as immigrants move here and why we love it because I don't think they... Well, why would they know, you know why we feel like this and why we have this affinity to Vietnam? So that's cool. So you knew at 10 years old you were going to come back? Yeah, it was, it was always a part of always a part of me. At 10 years old, I, uh, I think I realized that the world was a much bigger place than my hometown. And I never... At 10, year, yeah, at 10 years old... I realized that, number one, the world was a much bigger place than my hometown, and also that I could make a difference by living outside of my comfort zone. You know, it's not... I don't live here just for me. I live here because I hope that I'm adding something to the Vietnamese society as opposed to just doing a nine-to-five job in Australia, just being part of, you know, the workforce. I hope that what I do here, be it musically or teaching English or anything like that, working with organisations and charities that I'm actually helping to build a country that's developing so quickly, you know, being a part of that is really exciting. It kind of feels like, it feels like I met the country when it was also 10 years old. And in some ways I feel like I've grown up with it, you know, we've been through prepubescence and now Vietnam's obviously like become this incredible international market for tourism and, and food and, and all sorts of things that have perhaps it didn't see 10, 10 years ago, but I always knew that it was a part of me, so, yeah. And so, I'll just jump back a step. What was it like then being a pastor's daughter? It was all I knew growing up. So I grew up singing in church with my... Both my parents are also musicians. So I sang at church with my parents. I went to school, children's church every Sunday, uh, Bible studies during the week. It was... It's a very community-based thing. I'm from a, a denomination that's, I don't know if you know about Hillsong. So it's like a global Pentecostal denomination. Pentecostal being like happy clappy. 
right. um, yeah. drums in church kind of thing. So yeah, it was it was all I knew, and um, it was great fun. Definitely the community, like the the kids that I grew up in children's church with, they're kind of like my extended cousins. Some of them have come to visit Vietnam, which is really cool. And yeah, that was that was my life growing up. I didn't know any different. And then uh, I came to Vietnam, and I'd been like typical pastor's daughter, good girl all my life. And not not that I'm some sort of wild child now, but definitely being around an international community and living overseas has definitely given me more of a broader view of the world than just sort of the 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 blinder life that I grew grew up with. And uh, as much as I, I love that, it's really nice to be able to see the world in in a more full light now. Well, anyone who's travelled, anyone who's travelled at all, a left of home country talks about, you know, travel broadens the horizon. I know for me, I left at 20 years old, literally my mind was just blown straight away. I moved to America and then I've lived all over the world. So I've lived in Australia and I've travelled all over and I've been to country Australia. I think I've been to Orange. I can't remember exactly. But so I know like how, and I don't mean this, like you're talking about Tasmania being insular and definitely rural Australia can be like that as well. So I'm interested to hear your your opinion or hear your experience. Like your transformation or your mind changing experience must be quite huge to come from Orange, Australia, which is like inland bush country, and then also be part of the church, which is just a different experience as well. And then now you're exposed to a new country, new culture, all these international people, non-religious people, different religions. Like what? How has that been? Well. I mean, I guess tapping back into having had come here at, at such a young age, I think I knew from an early age that I was not going to spend my 20s to 30s in Australia. And I knew from a fairly early age that I probably wasn't going to marry someone from Australia. It's, to me, like, it's it's very natural to live, I suppose, what people from my hometown would consider, like, quite a unconventional life and lifestyle but I mean I wouldn't I don't see my life any other way you know the the idea of going back to say Australia or going back to a town of that size be it anywhere in the world just it, it feels quite restricting to me I love being in bigger cities I love being in such a melting pot I love being able to to explore and to exchange with other people from around the world like more about their culture or what, what shapes them as a person. And, and all those things have shaped me as a person too. Um, even down to like the way I speak now, I go back to Australia and my friends say, you speak so weird, you don't sound Australian. And it's never been something that I was like, oh, I'm going to change my accent. If anything, it was more when I was teaching children, kindergarten, uh, with the broad Australian accent that I came to Vietnam with, they, they were like, teacher speak slow we don't understand and so and so I didn't I just kind of tried to adapt the sound so it was a little more international and even you know down to that that's a small thing but everything now in my life has become more global and I I I hate to sound like a millennial like I'm a global citizen but that's how I see myself now I I don't I don't feel a real like I don't feel like I'm I'm tethered or anchored to any particular place Vietnam for me is very much home and I have people that I truly truly adore back in Orange in Australia but I went to for example Italy earlier this year and I feel like I left part of my heart in Italy and you know like I love I love 
Latin, like Latino people. And so I feel like if I go there, I'll be like, oh my gosh, this is what I was missing my whole life. So yeah, every, everything that I've experienced as someone living overseas has really shaped who I am. And it's very different to the little girl who grew up in a, in a town in Australia, but that little girl also knew that she was going to live in an in a, in a unconventional way, I suppose. And that is very different from what most people you're growing up with would have been, been thinking if you were thinking from that age. Because so to give a bit of context, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but rural Australia is very small. You know everybody, everybody in your town knows each other. You grow up, you generally grow up with someone that you're going to marry, right? Like, you know, real laughing because you probably know people like this, right? You, if you're not married, when I've been out to rural Australia, people have told me, you know, if you're not married by 25... You, that you're almost not going to get married because everyone in the town is already married off by that point, starting to have kids and things like that. Am I right in saying this? Yeah, I mean, my town certainly wasn't a big town. It wasn't quite rural, although there were a lot of rural areas where uh, kids would come into my town to study. Uh, yeah, that culture of, like, marrying someone before you're 25, that was... I think more so part of because I was brought up in a church community and I went to a Christian school. So, yeah, a lot of people did sort of go to school with people that they married and and a lot of my friends thankfully married each other because it meant that I got invited to lots of weddings. Uh, and I'm not and saying it's a bad thing. I'm just saying no, that, that's what happens. Like I think about like up into Chuka and all of these places and it's that's the experience that I've No, learned. it's definitely true. And I'm I'm so, so thrilled for my friends that, a lot of them have followed, I suppose, what you would call like a nuclear lifestyle, you know? Um, nuclear? Nucleus? Nuclear, yeah. Nuclear. You know, where they get married, youngish, uh, have kids, settle down, get a mortgage, maybe start a business, get a people mover, have a white picket fence and a puppy. And honestly, the idea of that, it's beautiful. It really is. And I'm so, so thrilled that people that I know have been able to find their they're calling and find themselves in that. But I, I knew for me, I was just like, that's just not for me. And part of me is, has always wondered, like, what, what would my life be like if I had have decided, you know, as much as I love the outside world, outside of Australia, w- w- like, what would I have done if I had have stayed in Australia? Would I be happy? Would I have perhaps moved to a bigger city and still done the whole picket fence thing? Would I would that have fitted me? And I think I just never would have really been completely content. And uh, I'm nearing 30 now, I'm 28. So there are some parts of that kind of lifestyle that I would like in the future, but it all comes down to the idea of still being able to have a part of myself be a little bit wild per se, you know, being able to have the freedom to if I want to jump on a plane with someone or if, if I want to try a new idea or invest money or, or do something like that, am, am I able to do that and then still have some elements of the nuclear lifestyle? I don't, I don't know. I haven't, I haven't found the balance yet. I think there is a balance, but I haven't quite found it yet. So You're speaking like an old man. You're still young. <laughs> <laughs> I just turned 37. And... Um, yeah, I think I had similar experiences. And then, I mean, yeah, I met my wife like eight years ago and it's, everything changed. And it was like, oh, this is this is my life now. We're together. And that was it. And then now we have the dog and we don't have now the white picket fence and things like that. But I think you find like um, there's just 
alternative ways of doing things, right? Like, and I don't mean like alternative, like all, like it's just there's different life, different pathways, things like that. And you know, like yeah, my best friend in the world, Martin, got married when he was he's just had his fourteenth, fourteen year wedding anniversary. I thought you were about to say he's just had his fourteenth kid. I was no, no, fourteen year wedding anniversary. I was the best man at his wedding. Twenty, I was twenty three years, fourteen years ago. And he's just the happiest guy in the world, and you don't begrudge that at all. It's totally different to what my life has been, but you can completely see how happy he is. So everybody, you just find your own path, right? Mm. So then how did you end up coming back to Vietnam? What happened next? Yeah, so I finished my two years with the band. The rock and roll tour. <laughs> yeah, rock and roll. <laughs> <laughs> Quotation marks. Um, I was honestly, after two years, almost two years full time of being on the road, I was just a little bit burnt out. Um, and it wasn't that I'd fallen out of love with music or fallen out of love with what the motivation behind being in the band was. I just, it's tough to be on the road full time. We were staying in different people's houses every night, like billeting and, and some nights sleeping in the bus. And as much as I love that lifestyle, like it really, it, I was like, yeah, I'm living the dream. It can be really exhausting. It can be, even with six people traveling with you, it can be a little bit lonely. So I came to Vietnam a little burnt out, and I was just like, okay, I'm going to take this three months with my family to just um, chill out. I had a bit of money saved up. I was doing some work with my parents in their organization, and I was um, doing a little bit of like volunteer teaching English with some places up in Hanoi. And at the end of three months, I, they, as three months was coming up, my parents were like, so what do you want to do? Do you feel like you want to go back to Australia and study or uh, start working again? And I thought, I, I mean, I could do that, but there wasn't really any real pull taking me back there. So I thought, oh, I'll extend my visa because extensions were much easier to come by back then. I'll extend my visa for another three months and, and just see how it goes. And then by the time I'd gotten four and a half months into Vietnam, I discovered the music scene. I was starting to do gigs regularly during the week with a couple of different musicians. And then by, was it September? By September, I found Hanoi Rock City in Hanoi and Wednesday nights open mic night. And really, I really accredit everything that I've done musically since coming to Vietnam to Wednesday nights open mic night at Hanoi Rock City because that place, those people, that dream and vision, that just really gave me wings to fly. And, uh, yeah, that, that was a lot of the reason why I stayed was the music. And then I kept teaching English and made friends and dated people. And, yeah, it's been been a really cool ride. So what was exactly Hanoi Rock City? <gasps> oh, my gosh. <laughs> so Hanoi Rock City is a venue that was founded in 2011, I believe. Could have, I believe it was 2011. We're coming up to eight or nine years' birthday in November. <clears throat> so it was founded by uh, three Vietnamese guys who'd all studied overseas together in England and then come back. So my, one of my really great mates is uh, Dugang Dia. He's one of the founders of it. And basically the venue is just dedicated to the arts. It was started as like Hanoi's first Western and Vietnamese rock venue. And over the years it's evolved, it's developed, it's become a home for artists and musicians, fire spinners, people wanting to start small businesses. Like it is a bar, but it's also a collective and it's 
for, for me, I really consider HRC one of my home stages in Vietnam. So uh, Wednesday nights is the, I don't know what you, Wednesday nights is the, the good night of the week. So you'll have people come, Vietnamese and foreigners are like travelers, expats, immigrants, like you name it. There'll be people there. There's musicians, there'll be poets, comedians, dancers, um, rappers, all sorts of people go there. And the place is packed. It's probably the same size that, like, if you're going to equate it to a Saigon place, it's probably the same size room as... Le- probably the same size room as Leila Bar. Yeah, so a similar size. It's set out a little bit differently. So the upstairs room, the red room, has the bar at the back and then the stage at the front. Um, but yeah, it's just such a great venue. And when, it, when it's popping there, it's popping. Like the place is sounds awesome. packed. Yeah. If anyone's ever in I've Hanoi. I've never heard of it before. Next time I go to Hanoi, I need to check it out. I wish we had something like that here. Oh, me too. Me too. We do have some similar things. Shout out if anyone wants to start a new uh, rock venue. Uh, yeah, there you go. <laughs> I'll help. <laughs> so then how long did you live in Hanoi? Six and a half years? Six and a half. Yeah, just under. So at the end of 2017, I went over to Dubai to try doing uh, hotel contracts. So I was in Dubai for six months. And I really, I liked my experience there. It was very vastly different to Vietnam, obviously. Um, I don't really think I knew what I was in for when I, when I moved over there. And I really had a great experience, but Dubai is, it's, it's shiny and it's, it's manufactured. And those things are wonderful. Like it is truly a mind-blowing city, but I love, I love the chaos of Asia. I love the grittiness of Asia. You know, it can be tough here and frustrating and completely confusing. And, and sometimes I'm just kind of at my wits end, like, what, why, why is everything like this? But at the end of the day, you know, as much as I like Dubai, I love Asia. I love Vietnam. I love that every day is something different. You know, it's not, there's no, recipe to my life in Vietnam every day is just well this is what I'm doing today I love waking up and wondering you know when when you live in a big corporate city like Dubai or, or perhaps like London I Sydney you know there's definitely like it's all rode out already you know it's just day in day out you do the same thing whereas here we we have the freedom to to make our own paths even if you are teaching English I, I teach English a little bit even if you're teaching or you have like a regular job here there's still so much to do and see and we have the freedom to do that and that's what I love about Vietnam so that's why I've been here so long I wouldn't have it any other way. Now you mentioned dating and that's something that uh, we've talked about before on the podcast with Susan Lee and I know it's something that comes up in conversation is the challenges of being a single female in Vietnam. Um, what's that been like what's your experience then been of that? So my early, my early years in Vietnam, I predominantly was interested and dated Vietnamese guys. Um, I suppose something I might have mentioned earlier when I was talking about coming here as a young kid, uh, I, I met another, a, a young Vietnamese guy when I was 10 years old. Yeah, no, that wasn't a thing. It was very much puppy love. I was just like, oh, he's so beautiful. But there was always that in the back of my head. My hometown didn't have that many Asian people in it, let alone single Asian men. So that wasn't something that I ever really experienced in Australia. But coming to Vietnam, 
uh, my early years, definitely, I was I was meeting young Vietnamese guys who um, who who were interested. I guess being being a young foreign woman, like they they are just as interested in me. So I I've dated a number of Vietnamese guys, uh, short and long term. I had a long term relationship with a beautiful, beautiful Vietnamese man who's now in America studying. He's a drummer. So we met through the music scene and he was great. He taught me a lot of Vietnamese language, um, taught me a lot about the culture. And so I, I find that dating within the Vietnamese community gives me more of an insight into Vietnam. So I learn a lot when I date Vietnamese men. Um, it can be a little bit difficult because I, I don't know whether it's society or whether it's media whether it's the culture, Vietnamese guys don't seem to be as, they don't approach me as easily as, as guys from other cultures will. And I think that might have to do with the culture in that it can be quite a shy society in some ways. And, and that's part of, you know, the tra tradition, years long tradition of, of um, quite a, not naive, but innocent society it can be quite innocent and traditionally has been they dated quite innocently so I think in that Vietnamese men don't often approach me as I would perhaps like simply because I think they look at me and might be a little bit intimidated so that that can be a little difficult um with the invention of tinder <laughs> my mom's listening to this. with the of tinder it's made it a little bit easier to sort of make that first connection and and have a conversation with somebody without them having to sort of build up all their courage to come and be like hi but that is a really interesting <laughs> point of view and i'm glad i asked because you know interesting to learn um because I, I wonder then if that is why you know when the stereotype is and it's largely true that a lot of western men date of vietnamese women and marry them and again that's completely fine i wonder if Part of that reason then is because a Western man is not going to be so shy to approach a Vietnamese woman, ask her on a video, just ask her how you're doing, start a conversation. So I wonder if that's why it's more lopsided that more men are dating Vietnamese women rather than Vietnamese men dating Western women. Because interesting, as you point out, maybe the Vietnamese man is too scared, intimidated, shy, whatever, to start that conversation. Well, it's interesting you say that. So... Another part of my life here in Vietnam, segue into this, is uh, something called Hanoi Beautiful. Hanoi Beautiful were, is a online Facebook group that I, I actually created back in 2016. I think we're three years in. Uh, and it's a it was originally created as a platform for women to make friends. At that point, I'd just gone through a breakup, and I realized I didn't have that many female friends So I was like, okay, I'll create a group and maybe we can sort of make a little girls group, connect, get together, have coffee. And in three years, it's become 13,000 members, which is wild, beyond my wildest imagination, really. But uh, it's funny you talk about like the whole lopsided thing and dating because a topic that comes up in Hanoi Beautiful, not regularly, but occasionally is, is how it can be hard as a foreign woman to date here, simply because... A lot of Western men, like you said, come over here, realize that Vietnamese maybe had never, like me, had never really had experience of Asia before. Come here, realize that Asian women, particularly Vietnamese women, are just gorgeous. And so there's a lot of, there's a big, I hate to call it like a market, but there's a big pool there, you know. And I think another thing that happens for Western women is that they see that 
Western men are, are, are dating Vietnamese girls more more openly and more regularly. And so there can be, like, a bit of bitterness that, that comes up. And I'm, like, I'm no... I'm not a stranger to that. Like I definitely, I'm not, uh, what's the word? I'm definitely not an exception to the rule. I've definitely been there where I've thought, you know, why, why not me? And that's okay. At this point in life, if I approach a guy or I'm talking to someone, they're like, yeah, I'm really attracted to Asian women. I'm like, good for you. Like they're flipping beautiful. They're, they're, hilarious like Asian girls my girlfriends are so funny like I love these girls so you know it's just about finding finding what what works for you um for me you know I feel like I've definitely grown up as a woman here in Asia I'm becoming the woman that I want to be and that includes knowing what I want dating wise or knowing what I want in a future relationship or a future partner and and knowing what I don't want and so I'm not I'm not really sure exactly, or I'm not sure who I'm going to end up with right now. Um, be they Vietnamese, be they foreign, but um, yeah, I guess knowing that, being aware of the fact that yes, I am a Western woman who, at some points, may be attracted to Western men, at some points, may be attracted to Asians or Latinos or African or Middle Eastern. I've I've dated all over the world, so. It's not really a problem for me to be like, okay, who 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 will I find? It's like, okay, if I decide to live here long term, who who is there who might be also reciprocal and interested in me? Yeah, it's 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 definitely an interesting place to date, particularly being a Western woman. Yeah, well. and that's what I've heard from friends and things like that as well, and, and so that's why I brought it up and why we we talked about it before. I'm interested to. Tell me, how has Tinder changed the dating game? Because, <laughs> because what I've mentioned, my wife and I, we met eight years ago, never used Tinder. Like, I remember the first time somebody mentioned that we were in a bar and it was a guy and he mentioned something about it. Me and my wife were both like, wait, what is this? And then he showed us, like, the whole kind of, and we're like, wait, what? It was, like, kind of mind-blowing. And it, I think it was relatively new at that time. And then now, obviously, it's completely changed the world of dating. So my wife and I, we just kind of laugh because we have just, we're, like, from a different era, Basically, because we've never used it or been exposed to it. Other than once we helped our friend use Bumble, we were like, yeah, no to that guy, yes to that guy. <laughs> um, it's definitely made it easier to, to start a conversation, for sure. I mean, I like to think that I'm fairly confident, I'm fairly outgoing, I find it easy to make friends. Is it easy for me to approach men that I think are attractive or funny or, or that I'm maybe interested in being more than friends with. Not at all. Like I still, even when I'm on the stage, you know, like I'll see a cute guy off the stage and I'll still be like, I don't have the guts to go talk to him. Like they could be throwing flowers at me. I'll still be like, hi. Like I just, I don't have that. Um, so Tinder has most definitely made it more easy to uh, make that initial approach with someone, particularly people who you might not be brave enough to talk to in real life it's definitely given me the opportunity to are you interested this gets interested in this conversation (laughs) little lady it's definitely made it uh easier to meet international people so like I said you know approaching Vietnamese men or perhaps Vietnamese men approaching me 
that doesn't happen so often. Uh, and also I work a lot. I don't get the chance to just go and meet someone at a bar or a coffee shop like people used to. So Tinder gives me the opportunity to chat. You know, you chat for a little while. Maybe there's a spark. Maybe there's not. Maybe you meet someone you're like, cool, like if you're going to stay here for a while, we could actually be really great friends. So I really appreciate that. It's also made, because it's so accessible, it's also made it easier to just treat people as sort of throwaway, you yeah, know? Yeah, and we've talked about this before, we used the word disposable. Disposable, yeah. yeah. You know, I, I often say to my friends jokingly, like, you'll never marry anyone that you swipe left to until the swipe left is when you unmatch them or whatever. Right. Thank you. I actually didn't know that. <laughs> so, yeah. so swipe right is yes, we I like that. I had this conversation with somebody recently, I think it wasn't on the podcast, and we were like, what one is it? What one swipe left? What swipe right? I think my wife and I, we were talking, we're like, we don't know. One is it? Yeah. So swipe right is good. Swipe okay. left is bad. Swipe up is super. Oh, the swipe up. I didn't even know that. <laughs> new, new addition to the oh, to right, the application. Okay, okay. Um, so yeah, no, it's definitely it's made people seem more disposable. It's made perhaps like when if you meet someone in real life and you have that instant connection, that's something really special. It's, it's not something that you'll ever forget. Um, whether whether they're just a platonic friend or whether it's a relationship. But you know when you just have that moment, it's like magical. Tinder takes that away. You don't get to know for certain. You might, like, have great banter with someone at the beginning, and that's for me that's a good sign. If someone's got a sense of humor, like, yes, that's what we like. But you don't have the opportunity to sort of have that real spark connection moment like you would if you just met someone organically. And I do miss that because... I've 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 had some wonderful um, relationships, friendships in my life come out of just that moment of oh, I like you know this person right here. I like them. That's cool, you know. And you just know that you work. So I do miss the organicness of of meeting people in real life. But like I say, for me personally, I just don't have the time. But then people treat Tinder for different reasons. Mm-hmm. I okay. you know yeah. some people treat it as a way to make friends or funnel people into their businesses in some cases. Some people use it for just, like, um, one-time things, hooking up, uh, if that's their thing, like, power to them. Me, I I, I enjoy the, the, the opportunity to be able to connect with, say, like, a Venezuelan today or a, someone from Wales tomorrow and, and, and know that, like there's no pressure to 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 definitely have a connection. There's no pressure to continue a conversation if it's not going anywhere. So that's that's cool. Um, have you? I've heard stories. Have you ever had it where you've seen somebody offline that you've swiped left or swiped right all online? My, all my colleagues at my school. <laughs> Actually, yeah, yeah. Okay, so in my experience, yeah. So right now. Uh, I work for a school that has an, uh, quite a few centers around um, Vietnam. And I've seen people on Tinder that I'm like, oh, my gosh, I've seen you in the staff room. Like, maybe we haven't talked in real life. It's just like, that's weird. I've, uh, back in Hanoi, when Hanoi being a slightly smaller city where I knew more people, I'd often have um, instances where I'd see a really, really cute guy, maybe a Wednesday night, open mic night. And then I'd see them on Tinder and it's like, that's when it's like, maybe I'll just see and swipe right. And sometimes it's like, oh my gosh, they match me. Like they saw me too. Um, but here I don't know so many people. So I don't have weird sort of awkward encounters as often where like, oh, you're on Tinder. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. 
yeah. <laughs> What's been the best and the worst pickup line? Because I know, like, I see these things on, like, Facebook and things like that. People post screenshots where it's, like, you've got to have, like, a good entry line, right, to, like, get a yeah. start a conversation, right? What's been the best and the worst? So... Uh, ultimately, the worst pickup line is the one that I get, like, at least once a day, which is high. Like, why... You don't get ASL? Do you not remember that from back in the day? No, because we're not using MSM Messenger anymore. Yeah, yeah, but do you remember that? Yeah, that was, like, back in the day. ASL? Yeah. Um, no, because Tinder already tells you all those things, so... No, I know, I know, I'm joking. Yeah. Um, worst pickup line by far is definitely high. Like, I put into my bio, do not hit me up with hi or hello. I'm not about boring. Like, I'll unmatch you. So this week... It's, I've had a lot of, like, hello in different languages. I've had ciao and bienvenue. Like, I'm like, okay, all right. That's a little bit imaginative. My best pickup line. My best pickup line led to my best Tinder date. Can I tell you the story? Cool. Okay, perfect. <laughs> so um, I went to Italy earlier this year with my band, and we're in Venice, and I saw this guy with this beautiful Venetian boy with this big smile I was like oh he looks great he's got a great smile he looks really happy and down to earth so I swiped right and he matched with me and he wrote the message first and he said my bio at that point while I was in Italy was when I was eight years old I liked an Italian boy I don't know if it's still the same now something like that and he's and so he wrote uh, when you were eight years old, did you know a footballer named, and then he named an Italian footballer. And I was like, no, I must have been too young for that. And that started a conversation. Anyway, the day he picked me up in his boat on the canals of Venice and had a bottle of wine and took me all around the canals of Venice. It was like, like it was like a movie date. So, yeah. Tinder's not all bad. No, 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 I know it's not. I know it's not all bad. Um, so, so let's move on. Um the voice, tell us more about the voice. What was that like? Because I've read, I, I like read it and I've often seen people be like, tell the behind the scenes stories of reality TV and they're obviously the, the reality of reality TV is very different to what you see on television. How was your experience with that? So I think, honestly, my experience being a foreigner on the TV show will, was a little bit different to the, the locals who participated purely because there was some stuff that I just missed out on because of the language barrier, for example. Uh, so when you think, when I, when I think about my time there, there was a lot more filming that went on behind the scenes that would later get edited to be on TV, which I didn't know before I joined. You know, I didn't know that there was so much behind the scenes stuff because when it's put on TV, it's, it's, like you see it live. So, for example, um, when we were doing the initial auditions, so, for example, when we were doing the initial casting, it was a whole day of being in the clothes that we would wear on stage in the auditions and then walking down the, uh, the, the runway with the stars and everything, doing interviews backstage. And this is all before we even knew if we were going to have any chairs turn around. So... The preliminary stuff that they do in film, it, it all adds into the experience. It definitely makes it more nerve-wracking. Um, getting up on stage after having filmed all that, thinking, okay, I really hope things go well. And then you get up on stage like, 
having the thought go through your mind, like, what if my chairs turn around? I've done all this filming. <laughs> so that's, that's interesting. Um, living, living with my teammates was by far and above the best part of the experience. Like, these young Vietnamese people are so cool. Two of the girls in my team were 16, uh, and one of them was 23. So when we went through from the blind auditions into the battle rounds, or the knockout rounds, four of us shared a bedroom. And it was just, like, the best two weeks of my life. We'd rehearse and film our rehearsals quite often, film us, like, just, you know, doing sort of day-to-day activities it was all set up, but like day-to-day activities and, uh, spending time with these kids was just so wonderful. They're just so hungry for music and they're so passionate about what they do. Even at a young age, I didn't know at 16 that I wanted to be a professional singer. These, these young girls are just like, they're all in for it. So gung-ho. So that was a really, really awesome thing was to see, I guess, be a part of like their lives for a few weeks. Um, but as far as the filming goes, I mean, it's just long days. What you see on TV is five minutes of a, f- a five-hour filming session. So I was just listening to a podcast this week um, called The Good One, and it's uh, talking to comedians and how they come up with jokes and blah, blah, blah. You should look it up. It's really good. And the latest episode is with Jerry Seinfeld, and he said he, he won't do TV shows anymore. He's like, I'm over it. I'm done with it. It's like, I went, I did one recently for Amy Schumer. She asked me and I went and you wait about all day and you're like waiting and then you go and do your like five minutes or you do a scene and it's like, oh, can you do it again? And this and he's like, I'm over it. I'm, done. I'm not doing any more TV because it's just the waiting around just to do this little bit. Yeah, that's, that's definitely, that's definitely a thing. For, so for example, uh, when we did the, the filming for the actual auditions for everyone to be on the show. We started filming at 2 p.m. and we didn't wrap up filming until 2 a.m. Yeah, so, you know, and, that, and that's, that's not even just the interviews. That's just getting everyone on stage, setting up, okay, is the band ready? Okay, are the cameras in place? And I had no idea that it was like that. So they were long, long days. Um, yeah, but I mean... It was it was a totally different experience to anything I'd ever done. Like, will I do it again? Perhaps, perhaps. Um, what doors did it open for you? What were some of the benefits or some of the results of being on the Vietnamese Voice? So the biggest one being that I've wanted to move to Saigon for about two and a half years, but I was never brave enough to make the jump because I didn't know if I would have any uh, jobs down here. I didn't, like... I thought, you know, if I move down to Saigon, I'm going to have to start from scratch and I'm not going to know anyone venue-wise. I'm not going to know any musicians. So the biggest thing really was having that exposure instantly gave me doors to musicians, to venues, to promoters, to producers, to agents. And by the time I'd finished the show, I was already getting calls and emails to get gigs down here. So I was like, okay, I can do that. I'm not just going in like... I'm not just jumping into the deep end. I actually have like a platform to, to land on. So that was the biggest thing. And I'm so like overwhelmed with, with gratitude that, that that was what the show brought me. Do you get recognized much? (laughs) Um, not as like, it's not as frequently as it was straight after the show, but it'll be the most random things. Like for example, 
I was on a grab bike the other day and my grab bike driver said, do you speak Vietnamese? And I was like, uh, not, not really. And he was like, but, but you're Ella Beth, you speak Vietnamese on the voice, right? I was like sitting on the back of the bike with my mouth open, like, oh my God. I was like, I mean, I do. It's well, I just... guess you would see your name as well on the grab bike. <laughs> right, so that would help up. as well be like, oh, Yeah, I so I think you just must have made the connection. I was like, all right. But sometimes it'll happen. Like I went to the, the recent beer festival that was held in D1 and one of the young guys who was at the beer store was like, hey, you were on The Voice, right? I was like, yeah, that's me. So sometimes it's cool. I got a free beer at that point. Um, yeah, sometimes people will just be <laughs> but it's just the most random times. So, yeah, no, I don't get recognized quite as frequently yeah. now, but that, that's kind of cool. I didn't ever want to, like, have be marauded by fans and have to sign a bazillion notes. Have you ever had to sign an autograph? Has anyone asked? There's all selfies now, not autographed, right? Selfies in Vietnam more often. Yeah. When I... Uh, when I was doing the band in Australia, it was autographs all the time. Now it's like, let's take a selfie. Yeah. I'm like, okay, please tag me. Yeah. So. <laughs> cool. All right. So what's next now? What are you doing in Saigon? So at the moment, my schedule, my music schedule isn't quite as full as I'd like it to be, but I'm trying to keep it open so that I have opportunities to take um, corporate gigs or any sort of functions if they're offered to me. So Tuesday nights, I do Apocalypse Now Bar from... Oh, this is going to be the part where I plug all my shows. So Tuesday nights from 10 p.m. is Apocalypse Now Bar with my rock band. Um, it's a great night. It's really, really fun. The boys that I play with are super talented. Uh, it's, yeah, great, great, great crack. Um, and the, the audience always gets involved. Friday nights and Sunday nights from around 10.30, I sing at Leila Bar in Leilai Street, which is obviously a Saigon favorite. There's some... Awesome, awesome musicians there as well. The other singers who sing there are just, like, world-class, really phenomenal singers. So working with them is great fun. It's never it's never boring with those boys who work there, the girls who work there. Um, and then I'm occasionally taking gigs with uh, companies for corporate functions. I've sung a couple of weddings here. Um, I'm hoping to, not hoping to, the plans are in the works, um, start working with a few collaboration artists. So there's a couple of DJs that I'm talking to. There's a couple of producers that I'm talking to, um, sending ideas back and forth. I would really like to get back into doing original music because I was I am a songwriter. It was what I was doing in Hanoi. Uh, but at the moment, coming down to Saigon, often I'll get bookings because people want me to sing the Vietnamese songs I did on the show or, or they want me to be able to like do a set of love songs for weddings. So that's sort of what I'm working with at the moment. And I've also put together plans to start teaching as well. So teaching, sing, I teach English, but teaching singing, being a singing teacher. So yeah. That's awesome. And you told me as well, you've started getting into comedy. Yeah. Welcome. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that's, that came about, the comedy thing kind of came about because I haven't really written as much musical material lately. And I, I jokingly, actually jokingly say it in one of my comedy sets, I'm like, I haven't written that much material because I've been single and I tend to write my best songs when someone goes and breaks my heart. <laughs> I mean, but that's like... The, it that's is, it's kind of a joke, true, but right? Like, there's the thing that great art comes from, like, great heartbreak and or from tragedy and things like that, yeah. Yeah, I find that definitely is true for myself, so... 
it's nice not having to be heartbroken, but it just means that I, my, my songwriting is lacking. And you write happy songs. I mean, you say that, but, like, <laughs> all that tends to come out is, like, I don't know, it sounds like sunshine and sparkle dust. Like, I'm a jazz singer. I'm not a pop artist. Like, um, I saw on your Facebook you just sung happy. I did just sing happy last night, <laughs> like but I didn't write great, that. No, I know, but it's one of the greatest songs. It's literally just called happy. It's true. This is true. Okay. <laughs> I think potentially there could be a, some happy songs in my brain somewhere. <laughs> Got to, like, get through all the mishmash. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, but so I started writing comedy because I, 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 I think I'm a funny person. I'd been watching, I've watched comics for a while. I uh, actually, funny story, I went on a Tinder date with an Irish comedian who was just coming through Vietnam on his tour. And we, we went to Sancho's on Boivian Street and we're drinking margaritas because they're delicious. And um, we're just chatting. He was like, oh, he already knew I was a singer and I'd seen him, I'd actually seen his shows posted on Facebook. And then I saw him on Tinder. I was like, that guy's a comedian. So we matched and ended up going out for a drink. What was his name? <laughs> I don't you know. pretty much like outed them by now. An Irish comedian who traveled through Saigon. Danny O'Brien? Yeah, right, okay. We can, do, I can cut that out if you want. I don't, I don't think you'd mind. So uh, I don't think you'll listen. <laughs> <laughs> Keep that in. <laughs> um, yeah, so anyway, we went out and, and uh, we were just chatting about, like, the entertainment industry, the differences between music and comedy. And I was telling him how I'd really like to do it. He's like, well, why don't you? I was like, um, I don't know if I'm brave enough to speak to a microphone. I'm fine when there's backing music and I'm singing, but I don't know if, if talking's really my strong point. He was like, well, you never know until you try. So that kind of went around in my head and... A couple of weeks after that, I saw, I saw a couple of other comedians were coming through town, so I went to go to Sam C. And I went to that night, and I was like, you know what? Why don't I try this? There was another girl. I forget her name. If she's listening, I'm sorry. But there was a girl there who did her third ever stand-up show that night. And I was like, like why don't I do this? You know, she's, she's just on her third set, and she's already supporting an international artist. Like, why not try? So I went home, and I started really jotting down the the things that have been going through my mind and it was a case of sort of like what jokes lead into what jokes to have like a solid five minute set and I finally had my set together and I told myself two Monday nights in a row that I'd go to the open mic night here at Indica and try my stuff and both Monday nights I was like ah no no I'm chickening out and I was like I was was the same for about seven years before I before I tried it's tough yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean I Lived in New Zealand, I had stuff written out, I practiced with my friend, I went to an open mic night and bottled it and didn't do it. And then I was going to Indica for ages before I eventually got up and did it. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. You work yourself up and then for me it was always like that moment of just like the, the nerves would just get too much. I was like, no, I can't do it this week. I'll do it next week. It's like going to the gyms. You just <laughs> just have to do it. Yeah. So um, I was actually up in Hanoi and... Uh, there was, a side, there was a show going on that asked me to put Banner Space on Hanoi Beautiful to advertise for it. And I said, okay, all right, well, I'll put the advertisement up. You have to put me on the bill. And they were like, you're a comic now? These are, these are guys who have known me for years in Hanoi. They're like, you're a comedian now? Yeah. It's like, uh, yeah. Thinking to myself, well, now I am. So I get up on stage in Hanoi, and I think that was a, a good um, 
audience to try in front of because they were mates. Some of my stuff like bombed, some of my stuff got huge laughs. I was like, okay, I can do this. So I've done, I've done three sets now. Uh, one in Hanoi and two in Saigon. And um, I'm working on new material. I think that's my biggest thing is just like getting new material, you know, because I think the, the jokes that I tell that are the funniest are the ones that I want to tell all the time. But you can't do that to an audience that's heard you before. So for me, it's just working on new stuff. But um, being around people like yourself, like having a chat with my housemate is an Irish guy and he used to do stand-up comedy, so chatting with him, like surrounding yourself with people that you want to get into the art of, I think really helps. And it's definitely given me more confidence and expertise opened my eyes up a little bit so yeah I'm really enjoying the comedy scene awesome when are you performing next they're gonna come to you okay I you've seen me twice now yeah yeah Uh, I think I'll probably be at IndyCar on Monday night oh really yeah all right I may come along right we're gonna move on now to the final questions I ask everybody Mm -hmm. that's at the end of the episode all right so the first one is uh do you drive a bike what kind and how do you deal with Saigon traffic Okay, so we'll break it down. No, I don't drive a motorbike here in Saigon. I do have a motorbike. It's in Hanoi. It's a pink, sparkly Attila. Uh, And the traffic here in Saigon, I don't deal with it myself. I get on the back of a grab bike and I let them do it all for me. I'm a little grab bike princess these days because it just, it's not so much that the traffic's as chaotic because people definitely respect the road rules here more. What? They, they wear their helmets and they stop at red lights. Like, you don't see that. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, it's more that I, I don't really understand, like, the one-way road system, that there's a lot of one-way roads here in Saigon. That's true. That takes a long time to... to and that just makes still. me anxious because I think I'd be like... I'm going to get there later. I don't know what to do now. I don't know where I'm going. I'm in a different district. Yeah, so. not, if you miss your turn sometimes, you have to go massively out your way to... Right. Navigate back, yeah, for sure. So I let grab bikes do that for me these days. So <laughs> on any day, my grab bike could be an exciter or a win. Like. <laughs> I like that, like, grab bike princess. That's a good one. <laughs> What's the oddest thing that you've seen on a bike in Vietnam or Saigon? The oddest thing that I've ever seen on a bike in Vietnam was a blue macaw. Just, uh, I was driving along. It wasn't a very big street. There wasn't that much traffic. I was driving along. And I saw, like, this blue – it looked like a stick, like a blue stick sort of hanging down from a guy's motorbike, but it was – he was in the way of whatever it was. So I was like, what is that? So being curious, I sidled up alongside him, and there's just this giant blue macaw sitting on his handlebar as he's driving along. It has a little chain on it attached to the handle so it can't fly away. But this bird's just – like, it's a big bird just chilling there, just – just going for a ride with its dad, I was like, what on, what, like... Yeah, I've seen similar, I've seen birds of prey on yeah. similar situation, yeah. That's yeah. why I asked this question, because there's so many things that you see. It's, I think that's the animals, really, that, that gets me. Yeah. Some, I, probably the second oddest thing was a guy on a really big, souped-up, well, I don't know what motorbike it was, could have been a Harley. It was like a really big, loud, growly motorbike. He had tattoos all down... <laughs> I can't even tell the story that long. He had tattoos all down his arms. He was wearing, like, you know, a, a black ripped T-shirt. I was like, mafia. And then as I drove past him, I looked across, and <laughs> there was this tiny little teacup poodle with dyed pink ears with a matching helmet. Just <laughs> so I was like, 
what is the life? What is, is Vietnam? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, good pet stories. That's a good one. That's a good one. All right, so you've got 24 hours off. You've got nothing to do, no singing, no teaching, no nothing. What do you do in Saigon? So a day off in Saigon, my perfect day off would be waking up, going to my local gym. It's like a little gym on the not quite on the sidewalk, but there's no air conditioning. It's very local. Go at the gym for a little bit and then go to brunch. Something I've discovered in Saigon is that I actually like going to brunch. Normally, I'm not a breakfast person, but getting up and going and having brunch here in Saigon is the best. So I would go to Emporium, probably Vintage Emporium. Yeah, it's one of my favorites. One of my favorites. Do you favorites. get the shatsuka? Like the Moroccan eggs? I've had the shatsuka before. The corn fritters really, really, really... Hard. One of my favorites. Bacon and avocado, right? Bacon and avocado. With it, yeah, right? or yeah. the French toast with extra sausages on the side. Uh, yeah, so that's one of my favorite vintage emporium meals. Otherwise, I really like Godmother. Have you been well, to that's Godmother? New. Yeah, yeah, I've, I have been, yeah. Uh, that's, that's if I'm feeling bougie. It's an Australian place, I think, right? Or is it is Australian? Are Australian owners or it's based on an Australian? I didn't know that. I'm pretty sure. I could be wrong. The menu is just, it get like, I walked in there, I was like, oh, I'm just going to have a quick brunch. And then they have like mimosas and champagne. I thought, oh, I'm going to come back here when I'm feeling bougie. So I like, yeah, those are my two favorite brunch it's on spots. Dalcoy, yeah, no, that's a good one. Brunches here are good. Yeah. So yeah, a good, a good perfect 24 hours would include excellent brunch. And then I'm, I'm definitely a bit of a girly girl. So either I would take a little bit of time to go shopping um, maybe buy uh, clothes or something. Or being in Vietnam, getting beauty stuff done is super, super cheap. So I might go get, like, my eyelashes done or my nails done. Um, that's that's kind of my relaxed time. Maybe get a massage. I try to do that at least once a week. That's kind of, like, my downtime. And then usually I'll, if I've got a night off or a day off, I'll meet friends for dinner. Um, I'm trying to think of some of my favorite places. I really like all the Korean barbecue places, sumo barbecue. Um, Dim Sum House on Le Lai Street is a regular place I go to. Usually I go by myself because I'm in a rush to get to Le La Barra, one of my gigs. Uh, but I really, really love exploring all the food options in Saigon. That That's fun for me. Like, that's, that's a joy and a hobby. Yeah, so those would be my usual day off things. Maybe go see, if I'm not singing myself, go see live music or go see a comedy show or some, something a little bit cultural mm. with a Tinder date. I was, <laughs> I was just about to say with any of this with a Tinder date. <laughs> I had a friend visit recently, and I won't say her name, and she literally just got off the plane, and she's like, yeah, all right, I'm meeting up with some guy at 5 o'clock. And I was like, like what, from Tinder? And she's like, yeah, yeah, from Tinder. I was like, just landed, and you're meeting me at like 7 o'clock. She's like, yeah. I was like, well, okay, bring him. She didn't bring him. And <laughs> anyway, I was like, I don't know, is this the world? I don't think she was like there to date. Or I think she's, just, she's really friendly and wanted, it's a way to meet people, right? Yeah. But yeah. I was still like, what? Really? <laughs> I, that was, yeah, no, I've, I've, I've done that. Because, because, to get a little off topic, particularly when you go to a new city somewhere you don't know, like, I, I'm very happy to travel by myself. I'm super independent. I'm super confident. I, I don't need to be with anyone. But if you're going somewhere and you want to really see it like a local, um, Tinder is a great no, way I have to like heard that. immediately. I've heard stories of this where people have traveled and they, and they don't use it for dating. They use it 
to meet a tour guide essentially and there's some people who want to do that and they yeah. want to meet people as well so yeah I know I yeah. know it's not all hooking up and stuff like that so yeah you go comedy and then any late night spots that you would hit up uh I find myself really frequently at TNR bar you know TNR right um I'm trying to remember now yeah it's off Wavian Street I don't think I've been. A little bit of a cave. It's quite dark inside, but it's open till late, late, late. So if I happen to be with friends or if it's after a show, a lot of musicians go hang out there. So it's a late night hot for musicians. At any point, you'll meet DJs or guitarists or, you know. So that's my late night spot. Um, And just up the road is the far place. So I don't know if you know the intersection. It's Fan Mulao and Do Do Kwang Do. It's the street that TNR bar is on. But the intersection, the corner of Fang Lao and Do Kwang Do is a pho place and it's super famous. And the pho and the sot vang there is like, oh, so delicious. So Finish with that, lay in your belly. Yeah, Home yeah. To bed. Home to bed. Sounds good, sounds good. All right, if you had a week to explore Vietnam, where would you go? Uh, Central Vietnam. So Da Nang and Hoi An are my favorite part of all of Vietnam. It's just such a beautiful area Hoi An in particular is so so stunning like just the the culture and the history and and the fact that it's be it's tried to preserve that that culture um but I haven't actually been up the Hai Van Pass yet so I would really like to drive the Hai Van Pass between Da Nang and Hue uh I don't know if I'll do that this year or maybe perhaps for Tet next year I'd really like to go do that and see Bana Hills in Da Nang I hear that's just such a strange experience but really cool the hands the yeah, the bridge hands and mm-hmm. then the, the town um, around it. Yeah, I'd really like to go see that and then spend a couple of days on the beach in Anbang, probably by Seoul Beach Bar. Yeah, I like that. I've been there a couple of times. Yeah, that would, that, that would be a good week. Cycle back through the rice paddies. Yeah, get a little bit lost, take some photos. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That's the one. And so do you have any hidden gems that you can share? Yes, my favourite... Food spot. It's not particularly late night. I live in D7, so it's over in D7, but I, my housemate and I hit it three or four times a week. Um, it's a vegetarian hotel place. So the address, for anyone who's listening. We'll put it in the show notes <laughs> yeah, as well. Cool, cool. You send me this. Um, the address is 334 Muenti I've been there. I knew you were going to see when really? you the YouTube place. It's just kind of on the call now. Next to Popeyes. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. We love that it's- place because we used to teach in D7 and we would stop there on the way home. That guy, I think, is, lives in Funyan. We met him in Funyan one time and he remembered me and my wife and he was like, when did that? And we were like, oh, No that way. Yeah, yeah. No, the pho and the hoochoo there is, is amazing. like yeah. out of this veggie, world. Right? Yeah. It's vegetarian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm not actually a vegetarian, but... My housemate is, so I, I tend to eat sort of vegetarian three or four times a week. Yeah. And that place, honestly, yeah. if, like, there's a reason we go back so many times. It's so good. They do these, um, they're kind of like vegetarian wontons. Wontons, yeah, yeah, that's what I can say. Yeah, the wontons, yeah, they're amazing, yeah. But, so I always ask for extra ones. Yeah, those. me too as well. Or my wife will give me those, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. I need to go back. I have not been in, like, months because we moved away and don't teach down there anymore, but... That's um, the one. That's the one, yeah, yeah, Winty Tap. I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, awesome, right. Well, thank you so much. Uh, that has been an amazing uh, interview. Thank you for your time. Thank you for sharing your stories. Um, I look forward to trying to see your comedy soon. Where can people find out more information about you? So you can follow my Facebook music page. It's Ella Beth Music. 
You can follow me on Instagram, uh, which is ellabeth.sings. And on my Instagram, I post selfies and stuff, uh, but also there'll be clips of me singing different shows. Um, I'll update people what I'm doing. I'm always on my Instagram story, like just saying what I'm doing with my life. Um, some of my funny stuff I put onto Instagram as well in my stories. So if you want to see some of my sort of comic, comedic side, Instagram's the one to follow. Otherwise, for music, Elabeth Music on Facebook. Uh, you can find some of my videos on YouTube. If you want to watch my shows from The Voice, it's just Elabeth, The Voice Vietnam. Uh, otherwise, if you type Elabeth, They'll come up a couple of my original videos, collaborations I've done with other people. So, yeah. Cool, check it out. And I, I always forget, I never even tell anybody, there is actually a 7 Million Bikes Instagram. I'm not a big Instagrammer. Oh, I'm going to go follow it. Yeah, so follow me on Instagram, and 7 Million Bikes. We do have one. I'm starting to use it more and more. But the better Instagram to follow is Biscuit. So Biscuit has our own Instagram. Of course, look that's up, an Instagram. Look up Biscuit the Back Pig. Okay. And you'll find her Instagram and all of her cute pictures. And you go back to the beginning, you can see how small she was and things like that. So check that out. So awesome. Enjoy the rest of your afternoon. Thank, Thank you very you so much. much. I'm looking forward to seeing your comedy. Have a good day. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of 7 Million Bikes, a Saigon podcast. Don't forget to go on Facebook, uh, like the page, leave a review, send a message. You can send me an email at 7millionbikes at gmail.com. It's always great to hear from people. Thank you for listening. It's really, really appreciated. It's amazing to see that people are listening from all over the world. And it's always really good to hear feedback from people. So thank you. Thank you to Lewis Wright for composing the theme music. Thank you to Lane Nguyen for helping design the cover art that you can see anywhere you can get your podcasts. So don't forget you can listen on Google, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify or on the website 7millionbikes.com and most of all thank you to Ella Beth for being an amazing guest you can check her out singing all over Saigon and you might even get to hear her doing some comedy maybe with me at the same time as well so hopefully you'll enjoy that and enjoy the show have a good one I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you're like me, you may use your laptop at places where you have to use public Wi-Fi. This opens you up to digital snoopers. It's a massive problem. It can be your internet service provider, or you know who, looking at what you do online, or a cyber criminal trying to steal your bank passwords or credit card info, or even a hacker at the next table trying to steal your sensitive data. These days, it is vital that you keep your data safe. NordVPN keeps all of these snoopers away. It makes your internet activity private, protects you from accessing dangerous websites that are fishing for your data, and lets you enjoy your favorite content securely, even while away from home. And it's easy to use, even I could use it. I've actually been using NordVPN for years now here in Vietnam, and I'm excited to be an affiliate partner with them. I've used NordVPN to watch Netflix, BBC, Disney Plus with ease. And I also know that my information and data are safe from prying eyes, whoever they may be. 
Join now and you'll get 68% off and three months free when you go to my link, nordvpn.com forward slash SMB. Just again, for those hard of hearing, nordvpn.com forward slash SMB. The link is also in the show notes. I know nobody checks them out, but go check that out and you can get the link from wherever you are listening to this podcast. As an affiliate partner, it also means that I will get a small commission when you sign up, but at no extra cost to you. So not only will you be getting a great deal through 7 Million Bikes, you get a great VPN and you'll be supporting 7 Million Bikes podcast. Stay safe online and enjoy the shows you love. Any questions, just let me know. You know how to get in touch with me. And thanks for listening to this show. Cheers. Cheers.